Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Vinitali International Academy, announcing the 24th of our Italian Wine Ambassador courses to be held in London, Austria, and Hong Kong from the 27th to the 29th of July. Are you up for the challenge of this demanding course? Do you want to be the next Italian Wine Ambassador? Learn more and apply now at vinitaliinternational.com. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Voices, everybody. This is Cynthia Chaplin, and today I have Jason Mikami from Mikami Wines in Lodi, California. The Mikami family have been growing grapes in California since 1896, when the first generation immigrated from Japan to California. And Jason is something of a modern-day Renaissance man. He runs his family's 123-year-old business, but he also has a second life as the head of efficiency and site reliability engineering for the global transportation giant Uber. So Jason holds a lot of very high-tech degrees and Asian language degrees uh, from very reputable schools in California. I won't name them since I'm not supposed to be plugging anybody on my show. <laughs> but I really want to welcome Jason today. Thanks for giving us your time. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Great. Well, it's a pleasure. It's not often I get to talk to a third generation grape grower from, from Lodi. Your, your vineyards were bought in the 1940s by your grandfather. And later on, your dad added to that in the 60s. How big is the estate now? What grapes are you growing there? Yeah, so our vineyard, uh, the one that my father purchased, is only about 15 acres. But on that 15 acres, we grow Zinfandel, Petite Syrah. And recently, we added uh, very classic Rhone varietals, Grenache, Syrah, and Mouvedre. Ah, great. Today, we produce, yeah, and so today we produce, you know, Zinfandel and Petite Syrah and a dry rosé of Zinfandel. And the recently planted Rhone varietals will allow us to release a very you know, lighter style rosé of the Rhone varieties and also allow us to produce a red blend that we're planning on releasing next year in 2023. Well, that's exciting for me because rosé is one of my areas of, of really deep interest. So uh, we'll come back to that because I want to hear about this Rhone blend coming up. The, the vineyards that you've you've got now aren't aren't the original ones, as you said. Your your dad has purchased some of them, but I understand that the ones that were originally your grandfather's were lost because your family was forced into an internship camp in Arkansas after the bombing at Pearl Harbor. We we know you know in general about the prejudice and discrimination practiced against people of Japanese descent during and after World War II. But, you know, it's certainly outside of my experience. And I'd love to hear from you, you know, how that, you know, horrendous experience changed your family's destiny. Yeah. So I think, you know, just to provide a little bit of context. So, you know, in 1942, uh, after war was declared between the U.S. and Japan, or you know, effectively, for lack of a better term, racist uh, reasons, you know, persons of Japanese descent were all forcibly relocated from Western states to designated 
what they called at the time internment camps, uh, which were effectively prisons holding both persons of Japanese descent, uh, meaning immigrants, as well as even full-blown Americans, those Japanese Americans who were actually born and raised in in the States uh, were all forcibly relocated to these 10 uh, internment camps. And in the case of my father, so, uh, excuse me, my father and grandfather, they were forcibly relocated from Lodi, California, all the way to Arkansas, uh, rural Arkansas, which you can imagine is you know, a huge, huge distance apart. And you're moving to effectively a barren wasteland in, in Arkansas. And, you know, the, the reasoning at the time was really around, you know, the potential threat of, you know, Japanese or Japanese Americans having some sort of allegiance back towards Japan, which, you know, over the course of the war and the internment camps, you know, there was never any sort of uprising or, you know, uh, acts of unpatriotic acts by the Japanese Americans during that time. And so for my father and grandfather, they had to effectively you know, sell everything that they had in 1942, whether that would be land, uh, property, cars, etc., and took, you know, roughly two suitcases per person uh, onto these trains that eventually took them to Arkansas. And for my, for my grandfather and father, you know, it wasn't until 1945 when the war ended where they were uh, released from the internment camps. And in my uh, family's case, they, they decided to go back to Lodi and, and, and again, restart their life in the grape business. And it was around that time that my grandfather purchased uh, purchased about 30 acres or so in, in Lodi. And then subsequent to that, you know, my father bought the 15 acres we mentioned earlier in 1963. And that's where that's the property that I actually was born and raised on. Wow, I just I can't get to grips with that in my mind that your family who'd been in the States for 50 years was sort of forced to sell up everything they had achieved and and be shoved off to Arkansas, which would have been hell of a culture shock from Lodi to Arkansas. I can't even begin to imagine and to lose their freedom as well. Your grandfather must have had quite the indomitable spirit to take the family back to Lodi after three years of being effectively in prison in his own country. Yeah, it was, you know, it's... um... It speaks to a lot of the Japanese American history, I think. So uh, it, it's weird now, through all this time, you know, one of the things that actually unites and brings the Japanese American community together is this sort of this historical event that affected them all. And they call it camp, basically, like everybody knows about camp uh, and how people had to basically recover from it and move on with their lives and actually overcome it. And so uh, it, it's funny. There's a there's a Japanese phrase. It's you can either call it shikataganai or shoganai. It basically means you know you can't do anything about it. You just have to overcome and you have to uh, be able to you know um, surpass that uh, that that bump in the road. That's it's amazing. I, I'm 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 so inspired by the ability to just keep going on after something, and and calling it camp is is quite. <laughs> I think that also speaks to the spirit of just wanting to move on because, of course, most people's experience of the word camp involves, you know, log cabins and sleeping bags and, and bonfires and marshmallows, not not prison. That's right. So I'm, I'm so impressed. It, it must have been the most Herculean task to sort of rebuild and, and not be consumed by anger. So so your dad, how old was your dad when they moved back to Lodi in 1945? Uh, he would have been 25 at the time. So still a really young man. It's, it, it, I mean, it's really, it's quite, quite the powerful family history. And 
for, for our family, what's interesting is that um, because of my mom's story, I actually sort of uh, have heard stories about both sides of the war uh, in terms of the Japanese uh, history on uh, regarding this, because my mom, who actually is from Japan, she was in Hiroshima at the time of the war. So she actually was one of the atomic bomb survivors. And so on on my mom's side, you know, she would tell me stories of how you know, she heard the actual air raid sirens for the for the plane that um, that eventually dropped the the a, first a bomb, and she was on the second story of her house, and she turned around from the window, and all of a sudden, you know, flash of lights, uh, and then she's under basically on the on the ground floor with rubble all on top of her from her house. And, you know, she's injured and burned, but then, you know, has to try and go find her parents. You know, and she's seeing the massive de- devastation of a you know nuclear bomb and seeing, you know, effectively the walking dead, you know, as people are burned severely, but still able to walk for a short period of time. And just the, the amount of, as you can imagine, crazy, crazy scenes of death and despair after the atomic bomb. And so, that's happening on, you know, the left side of the Pacific Ocean. And then on the right side of the Pacific Ocean, right, my, my, my father's side of the family is, is in prison, basically. So it's a, it's a pretty crazy, crazy family history. I can't even begin to imagine, uh, you know, literally for your mom to have experienced that and to, you know, be able to speak to you about it. And then also, so what took your your mother to America? Because you know it would have been very human of her to to hate America. Yeah, you know it's interesting. The um, so effectively, although not quite exactly, but she was effectively a picture bride in the sense that it was an arranged marriage uh, for my father. Um, so my father's parents, my grandfather, right? But he was from Japan. And so he wanted to find a, a, a Japanese bride for his son. And so the, there was this arranged marriage with my mom. And, and you're absolutely right. My mom had visions of, oh, this is America. It's a great country. My mom was very much into sort of Japanese arts. And so she wanted to come to the United States and actually teach Japanese arts, which she eventually did. But uh, she had Somewhat the idea that Cal, especially California was going to be this great, busy place, et cetera. And so she wanted that experience for herself. And, but her father was just like you said, he was adamant that he, she should not actually go to the States because this was the country that, you know, effectively killed one of his sons because uh, during the A-bomb, uh, one of uh, my mom's brothers was, you know, was killed. And so father was against it. Mother was okay. And my mom, thought that this would be a good opportunity. So she ended up coming to the States and kind of sadly for her, she didn't realize that she was going to Lodi, um, which, you know, at the time was maybe a city of what, 10,000 people or something like that, where Hiroshima was much more of a busier city at the time, you know, post, post-World War II. And so she had quite the culture shock moving to the country uh, and moving to Lodi. But but yeah, that was the reasoning for her to come over here was her desire to want to experience the United States and California and to teach Japanese arts. That's incredible story. And and so she she moved from from the devastation of, of her hometown and and finds herself in the middle of a vineyard in Lodi, not exactly a thriving metropolis at the time. It's it, it, it's incredible that she she hung on in there and raised a family and your your father, I know pretty much single-handedly was managing all the aspects of of the vineyard in those days, you know, 
field management and pruning and irrigation. What was it like for you growing up in the vineyards with with your parents and their, you know, very profoundly, you know, moving backstory? You know, it's funny, you know, as a child, you typically hate whatever your parents are doing, right? And so that was that's pretty much the case with me as well. I remember my dad trying to wake me up to either you know, start pruning or, you know, walking the, at the, you know, during those days, you didn't have drip irrigation systems. You had ditches that you would, you know, make with your tractor and you had to actually walk the vineyard, you know, almost effectively every day to, to see how the irrigation was going. And so, you know, we, uh, he would drag me to go check on the irrigation during the day and in the afternoons. And, and so, What's funny though is obviously through all of those experiences, I learned a lot, uh, as it relates to grape growing just through osmosis, right? Just not necessarily him explicitly teaching me. It was more just learning as I watched my father take care of the vineyard. And so, you know, that, that, that proved to be really critical for me when, you know, in the, uh, late nineties, uh, early two thousands, when my father was, you know, getting pretty old and was, uh, unable to really take care of the vineyard anymore. It was my turn to figure out kind of what to do. And it, and it's really around that point in time where I thought, you know, once, uh, once my dad passes on that, you know, I would want to actually devote some of the, some of the fruit from our family vineyard to our own wines. And that's what really when we started to make, uh, our current wines under our family label, which was, you know, right around 2005, 2000. 2005 is when we replanted the vineyard, and 2008 was our first vintage of our wine. <laughs> that is such an Italian story, Jason. I have to say, there are so many times that I've been talking to producers in Italy where the story is, oh, I, I couldn't stand my my father's vineyard. I couldn't stand the wines he made. All I wanted to do was get away and do something else. And then there's that siren call back to the vineyards later on. But you know, you're a tech guy before before this whole winery thing happened. You're a tech guy. You've got a gigantic job with Uber. You know, you've delivered all kinds of technologies, mobile video, cloud storage systems. How do you balance these two extremely different jobs of your, you know, agricultural life in Lodi, where you're making wines now, but and your whole tech side of your life? Do you ever see your family? <laughs> well, you know, l- luckily, it's, it's really complementary in some ways in the sense that, you know, the, the tech side of it is really around uh, especially for me in terms of my, uh, because I'm in management, uh, a lot of meetings, a lot of working with people, being in an office or nowadays, obviously being on Zoom all the time and, and thinking about, you know, these larger technical problems. But then, you know, going back to the vineyard, you know, you're, you're really able to enjoy and, and uh, you know, really be in touch with nature. And it's almost relaxing and, and, and uh, providing a, a time for relaxation, if you will, right, where just being able to do things like, you know, thinning the grapes or uh, shoot thinning the vines, right, is really therapeutic in a lot of ways. And so for me, it's, it's a good complement to the, the busy time during, during the week. I will also say that, you know, part of the reason why I'm so focused on the vineyard is just like we were talking about earlier with my father and my mom. It really is about family for me, and it really is about honoring what my grandfather and father and mom had to deal with and had to persevere through to keep the vineyard. And so, you know, for me, it was there was never a thought to you know sell or to transfer the vineyard to to anybody because uh, 
it really is for me a, a, an opportunity to honor my family. So that's why we're continuing to do this right now. It, that's so inspiring. I mean, it, it sounds like you've got sort of the the life balance worked out, but it must be a lot uh, going on in your life between managing the vineyard and managing your other job. So it's nice that your family sees it that way as you know honoring your family and, and having the business within the family. I think that's something that's invaluable and and not a lot of people get to experience that so it's it's very nice to hear somebody who really appreciates what they have and and loves it you know you can hear it in your story that you really love it and it was you who decided to make wine instead of just growing premium grapes you decided to start producing fine wines what sort of prompted that decision italian wine podcast brought to you by mama jumbo shrimp so I think part of it was uh, economically, you know, if you think about 15 acres of, of wine grapes, it's, it's not a lot of uh, not a lot of revenue just from 15 acres of grapes. And so, you know, if we were going to continue producing the producing the grapes, I, I really wanted to try something different from what my father did. So you know, going back a little bit, you know, growing up, growing up on the vineyard, you know, we were, we were pretty poor. I mean, 15 acres only produces so much uh, tonnage. Right. And so. You, know, you don't really have the economies of scale to produce uh, a ton of revenue. And so, or excuse me, produce a lot of profits because it's such a small amount of revenue. And so in order for me to, to make it a little bit more worthwhile, but also to, again, honor my family, I, I wanted to, to produce the wines. It was something that I thought would be a way to give people more exposure to the fact that, hey, there are you know Asians or Japanese Americans in this case that are, are actually still in the agricultural business and, and you know if you look at the total number of wineries out there that are owned by Asians uh, today it's, it's a very very small percentage and if I look back on the history of, of our vineyard uh, actually my time in Lodi the you know there used to be in the 60s 50s 60s 70s even there were still a lot of Japanese American families uh, farming in Lodi but if you look today just like you know, we were talking about me being involved in tech. You know, my generation moved on from Lodi, and you know, we're off in you know San Francisco or wherever. But uh, there's not a lot of Japanese Americans still farming back in Lodi, and so I thought, you know, in terms of the wine side of the house, a you know, it's definitely more of a money maker if if I can do it successfully, and and two, it, it expands our our exposure of the Japanese American story to a, a wider audience than just selling grapes. So. Those are the two two main reasons. That's so interesting. I mean, we we know that sort of sadly there still exists this sort of bias related to race and age and gender and other characteristics when it comes to you know who who looks quote unquote like a wine producer. I mean, do you do you continue to see this sort of behavior now? You know, what do you think the industry could do to promote eliminating those barriers and encouraging more Japanese American or Asian Americans into the wine sector? Yeah, in a strange way, actually, even though I'm focused on the Asian portion, I, I think what the wine industry could actually do today is really focus on, in general, the migrant worker situation and to expand opportunities, whether that's through some sort of merit-based thing or through uh, through explicit, explicit grants. But you know, when I when I am on the vineyard and we are working closely with the crew that you know is doing the hard labor of you know either Picking the graves, or you know, doing some of the 
the the pruning, etc. Right? These are typically folks, you know, in uh, California today, it's it's Hispanics or Latin Americans that are doing all of that hard work. And it wasn't too long ago where all of that work was being done by folks like my dad and my grandfather, right? And so if the wine industry can do anything about it. It was it would be to remove the the bias and sort of the 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 approach towards the the migrant farm workers and to figure out how how those folks can be more uh, participatory in in the wine side in the ownership side to be able to allow them to have the opportunities that that I have right and in, in many ways it, it starts with land ownership right and so figuring out how how you can provide the uh, opportunities for uh, for these immigrants and the children of these immigrants to kind of have these opportunities would be the would be the place to start. That's such a good point. It, it, yeah, helping migrant workers to really have become stakeholders in the industry that that is that would go quite a long way to changing the way that people are viewed in the sector. I think that's a really really good point. I I want to get back to what wines you're making now that you you took the the vineyard from premium grape growing and you started up wines and I know you sort of made that decision around 2004 or 5 what's happened in the past 15 years what wines are you making what grapes are you growing yeah so I, I, we're really excited because first you know we started with Zinfandel and primarily because a uh, the climate in Lodi is really well suited for for Zinfandel b Lodi itself was recognized as one of the Premier uh, producing areas for for fine Zinfandel, and so we wanted to ride the coattails of of those two things to start with a Zinfandel, and that's what we first released in 2008. And you know, I have to say we're very fortunate to have won a number of you know significant awards from you know say the San Francisco Chronicle. We recently won a best of class for for our Zinfandel, as well as getting you know 90 point uh, scores from from magazines like uh, Wine Enthusiasts and, and Sunset Magazine, but you know, awards uh, aren't don't you know aren't the end all be all, and so I think what we're really excited about with our Zinfandel is that it's it's, it's really a, a excellent expression of Zinfandel. It's not uh, a high alcohol jammy style Zinfandel, rather it's a more balanced, elegant style Zin that's that's still getting great accolades from folks, and so we're really excited about that. And our second wine then was a Petit Syrah, which, as you know, is a was very much a lieutenant to a Zinfandel, and so. You know, the natural next step was for us to produce a Petit Syrah. And again, there, we've been very fortunate um, to have you know, won a number of accolades. Even just this past month, we received another best of class from the San Francisco Chronicle. So that was exciting for us. And then now, uh, and I forget, I forgot, we have a dry rosé of Zinfandel, which we talked about earlier, uh, which is a very different style uh, rosé. It's it's deeper in color and it's actually more full bodied. Uh, my wife and I are very much uh, red wine lovers, and we're we're staying focused on red wines. And the farthest we'll go close to a white wine is with a rosé. And so even with our rosé, it's a more full bodied style uh, rosé. And so that's been a, a, a great uh, add on to our portfolio. And then finally, we have the Rhone blends and the Rhone rosé that we'll start releasing this year with the rosé and next year with the uh, the red uh, the red blend 2023. And uh, for the for the Rhone rosé, that's going to be a much lighter style um, rosé, lighter in color, still very crisp, um, but again, a very good complement to the existing rosé that we have. And so that's going to release here in the next few months. And um, 
and we're we're excited about adding these wines to our to our existing portfolio. That's a really exciting portfolio. I am also a big fan of more intense rosés, and I'm, I'm sure you know that. Zinfandel in Italy translates into Primitivo in Puglia. And yeah. I've been drinking a lot of Primitivo rosés recently that have that intensity. You know, I'd like to call them, you know, it's a it's a red wine in a pink dress. It has it has that body and can carry a, a lot of other food with it than, you know, a Provencal style rosé might not be able to hold up to. That's right. I, I love that you're doing that there. That's that's incredible. I just want to ask you, so, you know, just going back to this idea of your family and honoring everything that your family from you all the way back to your grandfather have achieved there. I, I know you're a dad. What are you hoping will come next in, in the Mikami family story? Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, you know, my daughter, Kate, she's 14. Um, she's a, a great daughter. And honestly, I, I, I don't want to put any expectations on her. Uh, I, I think I, I do have her work in the vineyard. She's helped out with harvests uh, for a number of years. She helps me shoot thin and prune out in the vineyard as well. But it, it's really up to her. You know, I, I, I just want her to be able to experience being in the country. I think what's most fortunate about my life experience is having grown up in the country like Lodi, where you know, again, I grew up on a vineyard in the country, uh, and now I'm, you know, I live in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and so I, I get to experience both both lives. You know, living in the city, living in living in the country, and so my hope is that she can experience that to some degree, and then she can decide for herself if she wants to carry on carry on this tradition. Um, but it's really up to her. That is that's a very nice fatherly philosophy, and she's a very lucky girl to be able to see her dad, you know, manage so many different aspects of his life and, and be happy and be successful. And she must have been, you know, a baby when you went over or, you know, or not even born probably when you went over from growing grapes to making wine. So wine must have been in her entire life. So that's a gift in itself um, from a dad to a daughter. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. That's lucky Kate. I'm envious. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is fun. It is fun. She, you know, I, I guess the, the one thing I will ask her, uh, you know, we, we do ask her to do this. I want her to try more fruits and, um, uh, so that she can be a, uh, a, if she wanted to, a sommelier later in life. Cause it's funny when she was a baby, <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. When she was a baby, uh, maybe three years old, four years old, I would blindfold her and like I would put like limes and lemons and other smells under her nose to have her guess what they were. And she got really good at it. Right? So I think that she is she from a young age, she, uh, she developed her nose. So maybe that'll give her the opportunity to be a sommelier one day. I absolutely love that. You're probably, you know, you're you're looking at a huge amount of money when she decides she wants to go for her master of wine. It'll be all your fault. <laughs> I I I've got six kids, so I know about uh having kids around wine and encouraging them to smell things and taste things and talk about it. You have six kids? I do. I do indeed. They're all grown up. Wow. Oh my god. But they all drink wine, so uh it does work and including them and making them feel like they're part of it um, and part of my life and seeing how much I love it and having to carry my wine books around from wherever I had hold myself up to study for something. They all appreciate it now. So I'm sure Kate will too, but watch out what you wish for because <laughs> you might, you might find that she, she 
takes it all the way to the end if she's that talented at that young of an age. That's fantastic. Oh, oh my gosh, you're scaring me now, but uh, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> no, it's all to enjoy. Every bit of it is to enjoy and don't show fear. <laughs> that's that's crucial. Never show fear. Well, before I let you go today, Jason, I have to ask my famous final question for all my guests, especially my wine producing guests. What is your favorite Italian wine? And you can't say Primitivo. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, you're really put, putting me on the spot here. I love to put people on the spot. <laughs> I'm trying to think. So one thing that's, that is memorable for me is that my wife and I went to Italy as part of our honeymoon many, many years ago. And I remember excellent choice. And I remember our last night, uh, one of our last nights in Italy, we, I believe it was a rifosco. Oh yes! And it was served chilled. Yes, absolutely. And that really stood out in our minds. It was really excellent with what we were eating at the time, but to have this red wine fully uh, chilled and served to us was really a unique uh, experience for us back then. And so that is what really um, stands out in, in my memories here. Oh, well, kudos to you for coming up with an obscure grape and a great story. That's fantastic. Any, <laughs> anybody can say Brunello, but Rifosco does not come up often in this question. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, I'm so glad you shared that with us. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And I know our listeners will be really fascinated by your family's history and what you're doing now with your, with your vineyard and your new wines. I'm excited to keep my eye on them. I know you only produce them in really small batches, which stinks for me because I'm sure they're not going to get over here, but I will have to come to California and test them out with you. Oh, that would be great. And thank you for having me. This was really a lot of fun to talk about our family history and, and our wine. So thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Italian Wine Podcast, brought to you by Vinitaly Academy home of the gold standard of Italian wine education. Do you want to be the next ambassador? Apply online at vinitaliinternational.com for courses in London, Austria, and Hong Kong, the 27th to the 29th of July. Remember to subscribe and like Italian Wine Podcast and catch us on SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you get your pods. You can also find our entire back catalog of episodes at italianwinepodcast.com. guys. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.